incredible sense of humor. And the drunker he got, the funnier he got. I mean, he was really, it was like his all, my mother controlled him when he was sober, but when he got drunk, it was Katie bar the doors, and I know my real dad popped out. He was an incredible man, full of life. Just every day was a new beginning for my dad, and he challenged himself. He was a man without an education who ended up retiring from the Raytheon Corporation up in Goleta, and he was an industrial engineer. Uh, you know, he was he was an amazing man, and um, and I just respected him, and and I loved him, and my love for him grew over the years. Uh, a few months after my mom died, I have to tell you about the mo- the day my mother died. It was not a good day. She died on September 25th, which was my husband's birthday. But my my, you know how they with the family secrets. You know, don't tell the kids that I'm going to die in a couple of minutes because I don't want to upset them. Well, that's kind of how it was when my mother died. She had, I mean, my father didn't call us until the last possible second that we could possibly get here. I mean, we had, my sister and I had four children to make arrangements for together between us. And my father calls about literally 48 hours before my mother died and said, your mother is in a coma and they don't expect her to live very long. I think it's time you girls get on the plane. It was it was like one of those things where we couldn't hardly. I mean, it was how could you do it? So we did it, and we got here. And literally, she um, she didn't live very about 36 hours after we got here is all the more. But I really believe my mother, even though she was in a coma, was waiting for her daughters to come. And so um, the Santa Ana winds came up that day. It was a Sunday, and she had been moved from from. Um, the cottage hospital over to Pinecrest, which is where they take the cancer patients when they're when they're, there's no possible hope left for them. So when a patient is moved from cottage to Pinecrest, and I don't know whether they still do this today, it was 1978, they know they're dying. And my mother was moved from from cottage to Pinecrest. And it's a nice little facility. It used to be a rehab hospital that they now use for cancer patients. And um, we got there, and on Sunday morning we were told by her position that it would be a good idea for us to go over to the mortuary and make arrangements. And I never heard of such a thing. I thought it was the cruelest thing anybody had ever done. Today I know it's necessary. You know, you just, you need to do those things. It's part of maturity and part of life. So we went over there. Now I have my alcoholic father, my alcoholic brother, my alcoholic brother-in-law, and my sister and I, both in desperate need of this program. And we go over to the morticians to do arrangements. Now, by the time we finished with that, all three of those alcoholics needed a lot to drink. They were they needed a lot to drink. My mother was no longer the consideration of the family. Alcoholism became the priority, the alcohol, getting it into their bodies so they could feel comfortable in a very uncomfortable situation. So we go over to my sister's and proceed having a barbecue while my mother is dying in the hospital. And, and I'm sitting there, I'm knowing I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this is all very inappropriate, but I couldn't get myself back there because they didn't want to come. And finally, after a couple of hours, I was able to get them all back in the car over to the hospital, and they're all very, very drunk now, and we go back to the hospital. My mother, even though she's in a coma, is sweating because the Santa Ana winds apparently come in in September. And I tried to get the nurse to get her out of these warmer pajamas and into something light and clean her up, and I felt so guilty. I was overcome with guilt about what had just happened, and I didn't know how to correct that. That evening, my mother passed away, and I spent, after I got into the program, 
I tried to figure out every which way I could to make amends to my mom for that particular day. I, if I could, there was nothing else that I wanted to change more than the outcome of that day. I didn't, I didn't like, I was like Sarah. I didn't like who I was in that situation. And I was pretty sick that day, but I was not sick enough to know that I was not who I really wanted to be. So God gave me an opportunity. Uh, many years later, my father um, was dating a woman. He met her about six months after my mom died, and they had an absolutely incredible love affair. It was the most incredible thing. She was six months younger than me, and she took my dad on an eight-year ride that was absolutely fantastic. They bought a Harley motorcycle. They, bought, they joined a motorcycle club. She worked for the Parks Department of Santa Barbara, had three months off every year. She took my father. She'd, she'd throw a map on the floor, and she'd say, Baron, figure out where you want to go, and she'd, he'd take a yellow marker, and he'd mark something across the United States, and they'd go for three months, her dogs. The little, my dad bought a truck and put a little camper on the back, and they took off for three months. She provided my father with an absolutely fabulous life. And see, we expect we're going to have fabulous life all of our life. My dad got eight years, and, and he considered himself a king to have had Louise in his life. She and he both developed cancer, which went into remission, and then her cancer came out of remission one morning when she's sitting at Sambo's having breakfast, and she said, Baron, look at my eyes. They're yellow. And he goes, oh, my God. So they ate breakfast with an ophthalmologist. And my dad says, go to the op go ask him. And he just panicked. He says, oh, my God, Louise, how long have you looked like that? And she says, well, a couple of days now. And then he looked at her skin, and it was yellow. And what had happened is her cancer had metastasized or whatever it does into the liver. And within two weeks, Louise died. My father called me and says, please come and, and uh, be with me. Now, Six months after my mother died, he had back surgery, and I went in September. Well, actually, it was probably a year because it was in September. And I, it started an eight-year ritual that became spiritual for me to go to California and spend a week with my dad, and I became the daughter I'd always wanted to be, and he became my dad. And we and I would roller skate on Sunday morning on Cabrillo Boulevard, and he'd read the newspaper, and, and then we'd go eat a shrimp salad out on the wharf. And, and on Monday nights, we watched Monday night football, and on Tuesday, we ate at the Black Dragon because I love Chinese food. And on Wednesday, we did this, and, you know, we had this little ritual that we planned. Every morning, I went out, and I got his paper for him, and I brought it in and gave it to him and made him his pot of coffee and brought him coffee in bed. And and I didn't realize what was happening, but I I wanted my dad's undivided attention. I wanted to be his most loved child, and I was been, I had been given this opportunity by a God that I didn't understand how much he loved me, and he opened the doors for this opportunity for me. And uh, it, Louise was a part of that, too, and she was fun, and I loved her. My sister and brother hated her, but I, I mean, I just loved that lady. And so when she was dying, my father said, something really awful is wrong with Louise, and I can't go through this alone. Please come. Now, if that's not a gift of love, I don't know what is. And so I came to California, and, um, and I, after Louise died, she just lived a few days. Her parents, her mother was alive. She was also the, the, the wife of, a, of an alcoholic. Her, Louise's dad died of alcoholism. The mother sashayed into California for about a day, made my father um, the executor of Louise's estate, and Louise lived in a one-room place, at, and she had very few possessions. She, was, she, she never wore shoes except to work. She was, she was so material-free. She was just an incredible, incredible woman. She, 
she cl- she would clean the streets every morning when she walked her dog. She'd pick up all the garbage and take the garage sale signs down off the poles, and she'd pick up all the garbage off the beach and throw it in trash cans as she walked, and, and she walked barefoot. She was the most incredible woman I've ever known. Had a mouth that was filthy dirty. Just, I mean, there wasn't, a, there wasn't anything that didn't start with F that ever came out of her mouth, but I loved her. I, I just loved her. So when she died, she had two dogs and a bowl of fish, and, and an old, uh, a little Chevrolet car. The parent says, we want the car because we think it's valuable. Send that back up to Boston. And the rest of it, you guys do whatever you want with it. That was how her family saw her. And I took responsibility for putting her older dog to sleep and finding a wonderful nurturing home for her other dog. When I got back to Texas after that, I realized two things had happened. Is I had created the environment that I had always wanted to create for my mother. I had taken care of Louise the last day she was in the hospital. I washed her mouth out with those little sponge things. I brushed her hair. You know, I made sure she was comfortable. You know, made sure the nurses were attending to her to the best of their ability. And I got on the airplane and I read a meditation in a little book that I read. And it says, if you want something badly enough, and it's of spiritual nature, God will see to it that it is provided for you. And he gave me the opportunity to make an amendment to my mother through Louise, and, and I am grateful. Um, so anyhow, my father, a couple of days, it was only a couple of days after Louise died, his cancer came out of remission, and we brought him to, Cal- we brought him to Texas and found some help for him, and he spent the, la- the last year and a half of his life surrounded with Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason that I know my father is alcoholic is because I know my father was alcoholic, and one day we were looking at a little glass in a Newsweek magazine, it's a Tumblr actually, and it was an advertisement for some kind of a rum, I guess, and they had an umbrella and a cherry and a strawberry and a straw, and the frost was coming just exquisitely down the side of the glass, and I looked at my father and I said, God, Daddy, doesn't that look good? I said, man, I would really like one of those, and he said, you know, I've been thinking about it. Ever since I've been on morphine, I have not wanted to drink. <laughs> My father was deathly afraid of germs, other people's. And when he was the kind of guy that when he went to the drive-in theater, I can remember this from when I was a little kid, he always took a clean rag to touch the touch the thing and bring it in the car. He says, I don't know where the other guy's hand has been before he touched that. <laughs> he would never, you know, guys at work would share sandwiches and he would never eat anybody else's food because he didn't know what their kitchen looked like. And he was just kind of a meticulous kind of a guy. Um, and so when we started to take him to cover dish dinners for Alcoholics Anonymous, he wouldn't eat the food because he didn't know where it came from. But all of a sudden he saw how much fun we were having and it all, all of a sudden just didn't matter to him and he was on morphine anyhow. So <laughs> Next thing I realized, he's in the front of the line. But one day, <laughs> he was just a funny bird. Um, one day, I, my sister suggested something to him, and, and he looked at her and he said, now wait a minute. He says, don't go making any plans until we check with the boss. And, my hus- and what I realized was that was my father had turned his will and his life over to my care because he trusted my husband and I. You know, and he knew that that... If as long as we were guiding him and, and he was with us, he was going to be okay. And what better gift can anybody give you? It's like a child when they're born, they're, they trust that the woman whose belly that they, the doctor lays that baby over is going to take care of them. They just know it intuitively. And as we grow older, we have to trust somebody. And my, my father began to trust, my husband and I. 
Um, and so when he died, I had no regrets. You know, everything was wonderful as far as I was concerned, you know, and, and I was free. I was just as free as I could be. My relationship with my children, my amends to my children are very simple. I am an active member of Al-Anon. I am an active participant in my own recovery. And that's my gift to my children. It doesn't get any more simple than that. I don't have to walk around and excuse me or anything else, but I am required by God to continue to go to a lot of Al-Anon meetings so I don't miss a new idea of how to make a relationship better. If I don't hear you share about a mistake you made in hopes that I won't have to make that same mistake myself. God gives me these things, so my amends to my children is to be an active member of my own recovery, and I am that. Um, and I am proud to be that. I am, I'm, I am the kind of woman that if you came to Dallas, almost anybody in Dallas would know me because I'm there, I'm about my business, I, I'm a participator, I'm active, and um, I'm not a personality by any means. Um, I am just active in Al-Anon, and when you're active, people know you because you're going to conventions and you're going to meetings and you're sharing at places when you're called and you get to be known. And if you walk into a city and, and, and nobody knows you, I'm pretty much assured that you are not very active in your own recovery. So um, <clears throat> I am active in my recovery. Today um, I can offer support to my child, the, to, to Stephen, whenever they need me. You know, if, it's, if, it's, if I'm in town and they need me, I will go because um, – I, I never had that myself, but I, I do that, and I um, I feel that it's quite an, an incredible thing that my daughter-in-laws love me, and they respect me, and they trust me with their children. Uh, they can see that I'm a, a great grandmother and that I would not harm their children, and um, both of my daughter-in-laws um, have great have a great deal of respect for me. I have this year had two heartbreaking encounters with both of them, which you know I don't need to go in on tape. They they came as a great surprise to me, and and for the moment that they happened, they broke my heart. But people are people, and they have feelings, and um, and I didn't know that these girls had this stuff going on inside of them, and all of a sudden one thing led to another, and all that it basically boiled down to is that they didn't feel courageous enough to express a feeling about something about my behavior, and it festered. And by the time it finally came out, it was an angry encounter, and I, and I was devastated by it, you know. And I had to really work hard at knowing that it was not, that was not about me. You know, it was not about me, and I and I had to. And then I could change the behavior that I that I saw was wrong, and forgive myself for you know for for my part in what I had done. But I also realized that if they had had programs that they were working, they could have come to me almost immediately and said, Beverly, you know, this is something that I'm I'm not happy about. And um, you know, I'm a human being. I make mistakes. I have clay feet. Um, I can't be on a pedestal, I, you know, and you have to cut me some slack, and I have to cut you some slack. Um, I had to start with my sons as a result of the treatment center to be able to put my arms around them and say, I love you, and touch them. It was a slow process. Scott and Stephen had both stolen from me, punched holes in my walls. Uh, they had done a lot of things, you know, in regard to our home that was just pretty bad. I, on the other hand, was not a nurturing, loving, kind woman mother. So we both had a long ways to go. And um, today, um, 
all that I can do is keep going to meetings and change my behavior, which is step three. You know, turning my will and my life over to the care of God simply means turning your actions and your attitudes over to the care of God. That's all that it is. It's not any more complicated than that. Getting up in the morning, getting on your knees, saying the third step prayer, and going about your business hoping that you don't hurt anybody along the way. Changing your actions and your attitudes, and that's what I had to do towards my children was to change that. Um, I understand today that I I didn't have much of a chance to uh, discuss life with Scott because although he was drinking the day, I mean, he was very active in his alcoholism the day he found out he was uh, dying of AIDS, um, he didn't get sober that day. I mean, that was not enough to frighten that child into sobriety, even that. In fact, it made him even a worse alcoholic because the thought of being under 25 years old and being and facing death and having a little child and a, and a wife, and I mean, I, I can't even imagine that. I, I mean, that goes beyond anything I can even identify with because I remember when I was 25 years old, a, a little bit younger than that, um, they were they had um, gotten into a little skirmish over in Germany. I think about the YouTube bomber and that Gary guy, I can't remember. And then also there was Guantanamo, and the president said, you know, go we could go in there and just destroy Cuba. And I remember thinking to myself, I, I mean, I remembered the fear I went into. I almost went into a fetal position in the fear that I had that what if they bombed us, and what if I died and my children lived, or what if one of my children was maimed. I could hardly function for about a month in the fear of, of the possibility of death if any of these things erupted. So um, here my son is faced with the absolute knowledge of his death at less than 25 years old, and I can't even comprehend the pain that he might be in, so he drank more heavily. And his behavior became worse, and when my father died, him and, and my brother came to my house, and it was the first time in nine years I had encountered active alcoholism, and it was just awful. The day before my father's memorial service, my brother turned 40 years old, and he and Scott went out and just got absolutely loaded and drunk, and when they surfaced around noon or 1 o'clock on the day of the memorial service, they had such a hangover they couldn't even walk, and they were awful. My brother walked down the driveway that day, and one of the girls that I sponsored was in my kitchen helping me prepare the food because we were going to have a little open house. And she says, oh, my God, she says, one of your father's brothers is coming. And I says, my father's brother is dead many, many years. And I looked out the window, and it was my brother my 40-year-old brother was walking up the driveway, and they thought it was one of my father's brothers. That's how his alcoholism had aged him. Um, <clears throat> so I had a real, it was a really bad day, and, and Doreen found out that they had taken the baby into the bar, for, into a bar for a little bit, and by the time Scott left there, she promised him she wasn't going to be married to him anymore. And as a result of that, and taking a couple of thousand dollars worth of inheritance with him. My son checked himself into a treatment center, and he did come back to Texas in 1990 sober. But by not, the end of 1991, as his opportunistic illnesses became more uh, difficult to live with, with pains, and, and he had neuropathy and began a period where standing was painful, they put him on a pure marijuana derivative called Marinol, and they gave it to him on an open-end prescription and he was able to go down to Parkland Hospital and fill it as often as he needed it. And so I don't have to sit here and tell you that he abused Marinol. 
so we had to um, we had to come to a place where we had to set some guidelines. You couldn't he couldn't take the Marinol until after three o'clock when when Doreen got home from work and we got the baby back into Doreen's care, and then take your Marinol. You know whether or not he did it, but I think he was pretty agreeable about that. Um, it was, a, it was one of those things where on Halloween of 1992, the, the neuropathy had gotten really bad with Scott, and he was becoming less and less able to walk. And we um, went trick-or-treating around the block with the Golden Retriever and my little granddaughter, and he shuffled around the block. And two days later, my husband wheeled him in the back door of our, of our kitchen. And at that moment, I couldn't stand another minute. I, I mean, I, t I couldn't stand another minute and I and I went somewhere you know I just a part of me disappeared and I think it was the part of me that resurfaced on March 30th of last year it you know I just think that a part of me could not stand the pain and um, and and I think that all of us each and every person in this room will eventually come up close and personal with a kind of a pain that you just can't tolerate it any longer so um, my relationship with Scott was as good as it could be. He built me a new fence before he died, and he put a planter flower box on my back patio. And I said to him one day, I said, Honey, I promise you, I will always keep it full of flowers. And he says, Well, Mom, I'm not dead yet. And, and you know, he didn't want to talk about it. But there also came a time where in order for me to have an intimate relationship with my, with my son, he suffered from the virus that they um, have constant diarrhea and he would have to eat 15, 20,000 calories of food a day and it wouldn't maintain his weight. And it got to a place where I had to humble myself enough to be willing to sit in a chair in the bathroom with my son in order to converse with him, you know. And, and it's, um, we're called upon to do some things in this program. Thank God we have this program because life will call us to do these things without this program. But thank God we have this program to sustain us when we have to do those kinds of things. And I had a relationship with my son in the bathroom. And, um, and it was okay. Um, my relationships with my daughter, with my granddaughters, I've pretty much covered those. They're wonderful. Um, but this little baby, I've talked a lot. Sarah is my, I mean, Sarah is precious because I've known her and I've had a very intimate relationship with her. I've practically raised her. She's been, she stayed with us for, you know, two or two and a half years on a daily basis and, and I, and she's like my own. And, um, but the little one in Houston, I was invited to be there when she was born. And that was in, in itself a gift. I was not there at the actual birth. We left the room five minutes before she was born, and we were invited back in five minutes after. But I've been a close enough part of her life. I don't see her as often, but I see her a lot. I make an effort to go down there and see her a lot. And about six weeks ago, Heidi went off on a business trip, and Stephen as well, and I went down to Houston and spent two days, two and a half days, taking care of Hallie. And it was one of the unusual perfect days in Houston where it was cool, but not, not hot, not cold. It wasn't raining. It wasn't very humid that day. It was spring. The flowers were out and everything. And, and the thing that I love about where my son lives in Houston, it's called the Old Heights area, and it's all old homes in old neighborhoods. And I love that kind of environment where you can put the baby in the stroller and walk to the grocery store. And so I did that. I put the baby in the baby jogger, and we went off to the grocery store. And it's normally a 20-minute walk there and a 20-minute walk back, and it took us two and a half hours to walk to the grocery store. It was the very first time in my life 
the very first time in my life that I was able to leave me and go with Hallie. And, and we rolled in grass, we picked flowers, we fed the squirrels, we talked to old people on porches, um, we knocked on doors, we opened gates, we closed gates, we climbed trees, we touched bark, we pulled leaves off trees. We, I mean, we did everything. And, and it took us two and a half hours to walk to Kroger's and come back again. And see, you don't realize those gifts at the moment. As you're in them, you don't say, oh my God, this is a gift. Because see, it will separate you from the moment. You just go into these moments and they're epiphanies, they're divine moments, they're eternal instances. And I entered into Hallie's world that day. And she went down for a little nap and when she got up from her nap, we went back outside and I threw seven balls in the yard and took pictures of her. And we threw the balls and we jumped for joy and we had more fun. And after dinner, we went down to the park on the corner and we continued our fun and did a, we swang on the swings and went down the slide. And all of a sudden, her eye caught a little piece of shiny, purple paper. And I read you my little purple thing. It was very significant to me. And she came to me and she handed it to me. And it was just foil, like from a Milky Way or something, you know, when they're wrapped for Easter, the little purple foil paper. Just a little teeny-weeny square of purple paper. And she handed it to me and I says, purple paper. And she did what a 20-month-old would do trying to say that. And all of a sudden we repeated it enough times that she said, purple paper. And we brought it home, and I laid it on the counter. And the next day when I went home, I called Heidi after I got home, and I said, would you please send me the purple paper? I want to put it in my journal. And I realized, oh, and then when we, when, before we went to the park, I put her in the bathtub, and we had a bath. And she's got this little thing that looks like an inner tube, and you put it around her head so that the shampoo doesn't go down in her eyes. And we've got her hair all bubbled up, and, and I, we've got soap all over her, and she's having a ball in the bathtub, and we've got water splashing everywhere. And I'm just, I mean, I am into this. I don't know what moment it is. I don't know what day it is. I'm in Hallie's world, and we're having a ball. And all of a sudden, she kneeled up out of the bathtub, and she put her arms around me, and she calls me happy. For some reason or other, Granny didn't come out, Nanny didn't come out, Happy came out. And I think it's very appropriate. And my son is a, is a stick to the rules, exactly, this is not traditional mother. I said, you leave it alone, it's her decision, and I like it that way. Anyhow, this bubbly, soapy little, cold, she had cool skin, kneeled up on her knees, and she put her little wet arms around my neck, and she said, Happy. And she gave me a full kiss right on the mouth. And I thought I was going to just die in the joy. Just die in the joy. And I thought to myself, what a great God we have. This is a woman who picked up a diapered baby with a wooden spoon and almost killed him. And here's a little baby who is so trusting of the love that I have given her because I have your, your support, who puts her arms around me and says, happy. And um, it doesn't get any better than that guys. I mean, it just doesn't. And see, I, material possessions were all that ever mattered to me, whether I had the stuff. But I wouldn't trade that moment's experience for all the diamonds and rubies and Lexuses and in, the, in, the, in the world. Because see, those things could be gone, but I will never ever forget that soapy, cold little baby who put her arms around me and says, happy. So I've had, um, I've had difficulty also with um, my relationship with money. And that started when I was 12 years old. And I was sent to work to earn my own keep. 
as they said. They said they would pay for my dentist and my doctor, but it was up to me to buy my own clothes at 12 years old. So um, I had financial insecurity because I was a depression child. And um, I had a distorted sense of values. Um, and I told you that I bought things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like, you know, that thing. Um, my husband's job terminated after 33 years with the same corporation in 1986, and I went into financial insecurity beyond anything you could ever imagine. Now, I believe that the word surrender has great significance. And I believe that sponsors and people in the program are right when they say surrender that to God. But please do not for one moment think that that is going to happen in your time. It is going to happen in God's time. When you say, I surrender this, all you say is, I am willing to have it become different. That does not mean that at that very moment it will become different. Time. Now, sometimes you can surrender something and it becomes different ex just like that. And sometimes you surrender something like your, jo your, your lack of employment and it takes a year and a week and three days and seven hours and 14 minutes and 32 seconds. And a, and a, and a anxiety attack that lasted from Gunnison, Colorado to Wichita Falls, Texas. But it surrendered finally. I was so afraid that I wasn't going to have enough. I was so afraid. During that, shortly after that process, that was in August and September, my husband and I went to, um, Fort Lauderdale to do a job and it didn't look like it was going to be lucrative at all and we had invested almost $2,000 in preparation for the work before we ever got there and when we got there it was going to be, a, it looked like a grave disappointment because a personality got involved and finally she surrendered her powers to and, and allowed us to go about our business and uh, and I was so afraid. I thought, oh, my God, we're never going to be able to make this up. And the next morning, I took my camera out on the beach, and I was walking along, and there were jellyfish everywhere, not a human being, not a boat, not anything, no dogs, no cats, no people, just me and jellyfish and the sun coming up over the horizon. And I'm thinking about, I am intensely thinking about how we have invested almost $2,000 into this job, and it looks like we're going to go home $2,000 in the hole. And I saw something floating on the surf, and it caught my eye. I mean, it was a shadow of something. It caught my eye, and seeing as I didn't have anything else to do because it was 6 o'clock in the morning in September in Florida, I just stood there to wait to see what it was that was coming in on the surf. And do you know what it was? It was a brand-new $1 bill. And I picked that dollar bill up off the surf, and I looked at it in total disbelief, and I started to laugh. And I said, okay, God, I got it. The money can come from anywhere. <laughs> and I promise you, the other thing that I had to surrender was our income, which is, you know, it, 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 we, pay, we, we are provided everything we're supposed to have, food, clothing, and shelter. Sometimes I want it in masses, and that's where I get tripped up. So I started to keep a little log of how much money we had when I started to feel that. So in January, I would write down the balance in our checking book, and then February and March, and I kept doing that. Then the next year, in January, I'm starting to feel financial insecurity, 
and I would look at the balance in the checkbook and compare it with the balance in the checkbook from last January, and I think, oh, my God, it's only a couple of hundred dollars difference, and we made it last year, so we're going to make it this year. Well, then in February, the financial insecurity would come again, so I would write down the balance in the checkbook in February, and I would look at the balance in the checkbook from last February, and I'd think, okay, we've got $500 more this year, this year than we had last year. Everything's going to be okay, and, I, and that's how I've done it. I no longer keep the log. I just trust. Everything's going to be okay, and it has. You know, and we've had... You know, we've gone through catastrophic illnesses, and we've had appliances break down, and we've had major car repair problems, and how, I don't know how it happens. I promise you, I don't know how it happens, but it's there. You know, my part in that is not to, over, not to overextend, but I am provided for where, I, where my needs are met. So that's how it works. Um, my personal friendships have also caused me problems, but what I would like to say to you about personal friendships is if it's just one thing, and I think this is the most pro profound sentence I have ever heard about personal friendships. Are they mutually rewarding? And I was taught that in, an, in a sponsorship workshop at a women's conference. Somebody raised their hand when they shared, and they talked about something, and they said, what I have come to understand is that not all relationships are mutually rewarding. Now, she was talking about sponsorship relationship, but what I realized then is that it also applies to other relationships, and we can choose what relationships we want to be in. So um, not all relationships are good for us, but we don't know the difference when we're still sick. And, and like with all other things, marriages, sick attracts sick. And the more we grow in this program, the better our relationships get. So be willing to let them go. Be willing to have new relationships come into your life. Last year, I lost five of my very dearest Al-Anon buds. Not to death, thank God. It was all happy experiences. But I felt a loss that was beyond anything I could ever explain. They were the gals who have for years and years and years sat at the table and at Horizon. They were the people that I looked to for answers and the gals I went out for lunch with and the people that I enjoyed seeing. One's husband got a job, moved to New Jersey. Another one retired and bought a humong uh, motorhome as big as this room and they took off into the wild blue yonder. And, and um, you know, one of them's husband was promoted and she moved to Austin and it was just that sort of thing. And I kept calling my sponsor and I said, this is so painful. I am so tired of losing loved ones. She's Beverly, they're not lost. Even Scott's not lost. He's still in your heart. He's closer to you today than he ever was before. She says, these people and the effect that they had on your life will always be there. All you have to do is say, just call them up by name and remember something about them. And she says, you have instant friend. And she said, please remember, when a door closes, a window opens. And one of the readings I just read not too many days ago says, we are so busy banging on the closed door, we cannot see that God has opened a window. And so we have to be willing to let the ebb and flow of life go through, you know, to allow friendships to change, to allow our work to change, to allow our children to change, and always, always know that when God closes a door, he opens a window. It's a, it's a promise. And you have to learn to trust. We just have to learn to be trusting of the process. I think a friendship requires truth and trust and nurturing from both sides. And if you wake up one day and find out that it's all been coming from you, get out of it. Because you're going to end up with a resentment that's going to cost you some part of who you are. So be willing to get out of it. 
Um, in the in the Al-Anon opening or closing, it says we don't have to like everyone, but we have to love them in a very special way. And that goes with our friendships. We do not have to be intimately involved with all 200 people in this room today and all go out to lunch and all live happily ever after. And there might be some people in here we absolutely detest and some people we couldn't think we couldn't live without them. But we have to be willing to love everybody in a very special way, whether you like them or not. Um, I am going to close with that. Um, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate talking to you. You have been so loving and so kind and so willing to sit and, and just, you know, be in the room. And it, that's a very wonderful experience for somebody standing in this position. So I want to tell you that I appreciate the attention and the love and the kindness that you have given me back. As I said, we'll start this workshop about 2.15. I have handouts now for whoever of you are new and didn't catch yesterday. Please feel free to take one of them. They're about intimacy and feelings and sponsorship. It's just kind of a little potpourri kind of a thing. When you come back this afternoon, I have uh, we're going to have a little raffle kind of a thing, and uh, I've got two gifts for people. I'll have my journal sheets and, and uh and a little gift inside of there for you. So what I'm trying to do is, I don't want to be here by myself is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> I'm buying your friendship. All for coming back. I had visions of doing this all by myself. I, I don't know how you feel, but I mean, I admire each and every one of you that's sitting in this room because you have been sitting all day. Uh, so thank you so much for bringing energy and love to this room today and for um, being here for me uh, as well as for each other. Um, I have had a wonderful time sharing my experience, strength, and hope with you. And um, I walked out of the luncheon a few moments early so I could change my clothes and kind of rest a minute, and I called my sponsor, and, and, um, and I'm ready, and I hope you are as well. Um, I promised presents. I brought them. <laughs> and um, so anyhow, what I'm going to do for the next, for this hour now, is to talk to you about steps 10, 11, and 12, which have been really the most important part of my journey. I mean, when I say that, when I say it, the most important part of my journey, I, I, every time I talk about some part of my recovery, I think, oh, that's the most important part. You know, my friends are the most important part. And Steps 10, 11, and 12 are the most important part, and oh my God, my journal is the most important part, and um, going to meetings is the most important part, and it's like, it's kind of silly to say which is really the most important part of recovery, but this is a very important part of recovery for me. Um, I walked out of my room without bringing my journal, and I wanted to show you what my journal looked like. Perhaps if my husband comes back, I can send him on one of those little honeydew errands. <laughs> He's probably out in the hall, and maybe he'll hear me. Um, steps 10, 11, and 12, continuing to take personal inventory and when you were wrong, promptly admitting it. As, you were, are, as we are, as I am, establishing my relationships with my loved ones and with my program and with my God and my husband and my daughter-in-laws and my granddaughters, the way that I continue to have healthy relationships is to be committed to steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, you know, every day, every step is important. I believe every day that you wake up, it's important to understand exactly what you're powerless over. You know, a little inventory. What is the thing? You know, is it a boss at work who's just gnarly? 
Uh, is it is it a child who's on the brink of drug addiction or alcoholism and you've discovered lower companions and things floating in your washing machine? You know, is it is it a marriage that looks like there's just not another day of, of life left in it, whatever it is that you're powerless over, whether it's the fact that you've run out of gas on the freeway. Um, I have a I have a car I call Cloud. And um, I have to tell you about Cloud because it's a wonderful story. Um, about um, less than a month before my son died, every morning my husband got up about 5.30 and he drove to Carrollton, which is about 11 miles from our house, and he picked up our granddaughter between 5.30 and 6 o'clock in the morning because my daughter-in-law was working a very early shift and it got to a place where my son could no longer care for Sarah. So this one morning, um, my husband was had picked the baby up, put her in the car. She had Barney, you know, those that green and purple little stuffed animals. She had Barney with her, and she's buckled into her seatbelt, which was mandatory. And they're coming down the road, and occasionally, and I've heard, I thank God for open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've heard this before. Sometimes alcoholics tend to drive a little reckless. Sometimes they get up and they think that it's all about them out there, you know. And, and sometimes when they are restless, irritable, and discontent, they get out on the highway and they decide to get them, whoever they are. And occasionally my husband suffers from that character defect. And this particular morning he was, of course, very unnerved at, at what was happening with our child and, and we're tired and, and it's sad and, you know, and so he gets onto the highway and I'm not clear about the exact things, but something happened with a garbage truck and passing it and the next thing he hit one wall and then came across three lanes of the interstate and hit the other wall and then skidded alongside that wall and what was a 1981 Honda hatchback that was going north, it looked like it was going south and you know and the car was actually heading north but it looked like it was going south and and so I'm in bed becoming spiritual well my because I very seldom got up that early and went with him that was his thing to do so they come in and this little this little three-year-old or her eyes are as big as saucers and she walks into my bedroom and she goes oh nanny it was awful <laughs> and I said what was awful and she says oh, Papa hit the wall <laughs> and I said oh but she says, I was wearing my seatbelt, and I'm okay, but Barney is not going to be okay. And I, so we got a Band-Aid, and we fixed up Barney, and, you know, and everything. And, and so I got up, and I, and I says, what is she talking about? And he says, well, he had a little accident. And I looked at the car, and it was parked facing west, but it looked like it was going east. And, and he, we called the dump, and it literally called the dump, and for 25 bucks, if we could get it there, they would take it for trash. And he managed somehow to get this car home. I don't know. He drove it home with the baby inside of it. So anyhow, that afternoon, we take the car down to the dump to sell it for $25 worth of trash. And I make her a peanut butter sandwich, and, and I cut it in half, and I buckled her in. And we're driving down to the dump, and, and she says, I can't finish my sandwich. It was an unnerving day for this poor little kid, you know. And I says, it's okay, honey. And I took the sandwich, and I opened up my sunroof, and I took the sandwich, and I just threw the sandwich out the sunroof. And she said, oh, what did you do? And I says, God loves peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and so she was just amazed. <laughs> she was totally amazed. God loves peanut butter and jelly. So anyhow, we, we sell the car for junk, and we head back home. And for the next three or four weeks, 
we had so much going on, my husband and I didn't even notice we were down to one car. And so after Scott's memorial and life kind of started to happen, and you get back in the mainstream immediately, the day of my, my son's memorial service, I was in the process of taking Logan, the golden retriever, for, for obedience school, and we were in the middle of, we had been through um, puppy classes, and we were in basic, and you re, it's hard to miss. And, and so I took Logan, the day of the memorial, I took Logan for, for dog classes because we're taught here to do the next right thing. And, and I knew that if, you know, you don't stay, there, what, what good was it going to do me to stay home? So me and my dog went off to school. So we woke up one day realizing that we had to get back in the mainstream of life. We needed another car. So my husband starts looking in the paper, and I wanted a Toyota 4Runner. I just visualized myself in, in a 4Runner. However, he happened to find a beautiful um, Acura that was listed in the paper. It was an old car, but it was a, you know, and I said, that's my car. And it was five years old at the time I bought it, but anyhow, I got it home, and it was like it was right off the showroom. I mean, this car is five years old, and you could still smell the leather. It was so beautiful. And I'd always looked at these cars, and I thought to myself, you know, if I was rich and famous, I could have one. And um, so here's this car, you know, and it's been parked in some lady who's got a lot of money. Parked in it, She bought it and then parked it in her garage because she'd really rather drive the Porsche. And, um, and I knew that God was saving it for me until I could afford to buy it, and I got this wonderful car. And, and I ended up... I've never done this before because I've always thought it was rather foolish, but for whatever reason, I decided to call this car, car Cloud, and she's silver. And, and my thought behind that was the thought that came to me is behind every cloud is the silver lining. And so those are foolish little things that I do, but it tightens my grip on this God of my understanding because um, what I realized is that God likes a nice car and he likes to go fast. <laughs> And a lot of times they don't catch little old ladies in the speeding bullets. <laughs> so I was telling that story one time, and, and somebody said to me, Beverly, this is an honest program, and you do have to slow down. And I said, I do. I do. But, but sometimes I just have to do it. You know, you just got to do it. So um, that has absolutely nothing to do with the tenth step at all, except that um, it's a... I love this story, and I, it, it's one of the ways that I know God watches out for me. You know, it, it just watches out for me. My children were, my, my granddaughter was safe that day. Barney got a Band-Aid. Um, I got a, you know, I have a nice new car, and, and my, you know, it was, it was okay. The morning that that was happening, I was continuing to take personal inventory, you know, and, and I had, um, I have a routine. And I talked to you yesterday about spiritual and the center of that word being ritual. And ritual means routine, that you do it over and over and over and over. I don't know how you are, but I'm the kind of lady who gets up and I says, today I'm going to walk. And I'm going to walk every day for the rest of my life. And I get up and I hitch that golden retriever to her choke chain and we take off and we walk. And the next morning I get up and I think, well, I'm a little hot today. I'll walk, I'll walk after dinner. Or it looks like by the time I get out there to walk, it's probably going to rain, so there's no sense going for a walk. And the next thing I know, a month has passed. Do you relate to that? So for me, this ritual, this routine that I have developed, um, over the years, see, years, <laughs> um, um, over the years, I have guarded this ritual. What I have come to realize is that I will live if I don't walk. 
I will live if I miss a dog obedience class. I will live if I miss an Al-Anon meeting from time to time. But I'm not so sure I will live if I miss a day of prayer and meditation because just like that, it could be gone. And I take my prayer and meditation time extremely seriously. My husband and I uh, work together, and uh, many mornings we have to get up very, very early, way before the sun even comes up. And even at that time, I will sit for a moment in my bed very quietly and contemplate my day and then get on my knees and say my prayers. And then when we finally do get into the car, he doesn't put the radio on for a while so I can write in my journal. So um, no matter what, no matter where, no matter how, this is a ritual and a routine that I am not willing to let go of. I realized it has saved my life. I told you yesterday about the, the, the ritual, you know, finding myself in this ritual. And, um, and it's nothing fancy. I'll, you know, as time goes on this afternoon, I will share with you exactly what I do. But it keeps me hooked to the power. I've had to search for the little things that are meaningful for me. And it means reading a lot of books and trying to stimulate some new ideas. And it really turned out to be a very simple thing. And I do it, and it works. Um, The actions that I take to continue to take the personal inventory is to read the Al-Anon literature, do the prayer on my knees, write about my feelings, remember about the slogans, you know, just for today, uh, let go and let God, um, but for the grace is my favorite. You know, I told you I I feel like, you know, the, the song Amazing Grace was written a long, long time ago, but I feel like it was written for me. Each day as I do review the day, I think about the wonders that, you know, have happened. Several, about a month or two ago, I was at a women's conference in another state, and um, Saturday night they had a talent show, and, and as talent shows go with 60 women, there was some things that were kind of fun and some things that I thought they were brave as they could be to get up there and share. <laughs> but a girl came with one of those karaoke machines, and uh and as a part of her uh, little part of the talent show, she sang Amazing Grace and with, with the help of this karaoke machine. And then she sang another song, which I could not decide. You know, I just thought it wasn't, wasn't relevant to anything. But she sang the song, I Can See Clearly Now. And uh, all of a sudden, we've all had these moments where we weep. It's not about sobbing. And it's not about crying or boohooing. It's where we weep. And the tears, for a reason that we are not even aware of, come down our cheeks. And I have told you moments where I have wept at the, at the jellyfish. But when this girl sang, I can see clearly now, I wept that night. And um, Polly was standing next to me, and she all of a sudden she looked and she says, Oh, my God, I didn't realize you were in pain. And I says, I don't think I am. And And... When the girl was through singing, I went up to her and I said, could I please have the the words to that song? And here's how people in this program are. They are so awesome. About a week and a half after this conference, this little gal sent me a tape. And she talked to me for about 15 minutes. She told me how she had been listening to tapes of mine for a long time and how happy she was to have finally gotten to put a face with the voice and how thrilled she was that that I had connected with her through this song that she sang. And she told me a little bit about her life. And then she sang the song. And then she enclosed the words to the song. 
And it, the song is is from Running uh, Cool Runnings, which I don't believe I've ever seen the movie, and it was sang by Jimmy Cliff. And when I realized the power in these words, what I realized is there was a part of me that didn't know whether it was okay to see clearly now that the rain was gone. Did I deserve to be free of the sadness of losing my son? Did I deserve to be free of um, and and to be out, just go on about living my life and know that the, you know that I could see clearly? And I guess there was the moment of contemplation where I had inside of my soul to make the decision that I was going to let that go and, and totally and freely go on with my life. Because I told you I had already come out of the darkness of that grief, but there must still have been some part of me that wasn't sure that I deserved to go on, you know, and, and just have a happy life even though my son was gone. And the words to this song are, I can see clearly now the rain has gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. I think I can make it now. The pain is gone. All of the bad feelings have disappeared. Here is a rainbow I've been praying for. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. And I just, you know, I just feel like it really, I have had bright, sunshiny days. You know, this program is a bright, sunshiny day for me. Five weeks after Scott died, I had the privilege of speaking at the California Woman to Woman at Lake Arrowhead. And on Sunday morning, Carol Toy did the hula to Aloha. And it was one of those mornings where I wept. You know, all of these things are gifts. It's the way God releases the pain from inside of us and gives us an expression of our, our grief, our sorrow, our joy, our happiness. And all of the weeping that I do is not about sadness. It's about joy sometimes. It's about being able to remember all those wonderful times. So please, please don't misunderstand when I talk to you about my feelings. They are, an, an, they are a blend of joy and sorrow. In The Prophet by Gibran, there's one page on there. It says, in joy and sorrow. And the promise in that is that joy and sorrow are always an equal blend. And so, um, and we are, we are, it is our responsibility to find the joy to not stay hooked in the sorrow. It's a blend. It's, it's a balance. It's a beauty all of its own. Um, in, in this 10th um, step, in the AA 12 and 12, it says the, info, the emphasis on inventory is, heavily, is heavy only because of a great, many, a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate appraisal. You know, we've been focusing on somebody else and thinking that their problems is what was making us behave the way we were. And what we have to come to understand is that this accurate appraisal is difficult. And we're, sometimes we're afraid to do an accurate appraisal because the fear is that what if you know who I am? You know, what if I, what if I finally reveal to a sponsor that I am jealous? What is she going to think of me? You know, what if I finally reveal to a sponsor that I have um, spent more money than I should have spent? What if I reveal to a sponsor that I have called somebody a critical name? What is she going to think of me? So I sometimes believe that our fears of losing the people we love keep us from accurate self-appraisal. If you're, if you're um, 
really want recovery, you are going to have to believe that if these people love you, they are going to stay no matter what, because believe it or not, they already know who we are. You know, we are the only people who don't know who we are. You know, so um, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. This is in the AA 12 and 12. Um, another thing is, um, this is from the ODAP book. On page 176, it says, if this step becomes a part of our daily life, there will be no backlog of guilt or worry. We will keep order as we go along. Look to yourself. It is there that all the answers are found. Do you know I pondered that for 10 years? I couldn't figure out what that meant. On page 213, it says, I would like to look back over this month and see what progress I have made and what changes have taken place in my life as a result of practicing the Al-Anon program. Now, I know there's a lot of, there's a blend of young and old in this room, and I am here to tell you that I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, so looking back over a month without the aid of something written is almost impossible for me. And I can't celebrate my recovery if I can't see where I have recovered. I have to see my progress. So for me, the journaling is very, very important. The journal first came to me through a lady named Jean Coffin, and I can break her anonymity because she has um, she passed away and she's in the big meeting. And Jean was um, Jean was in the treatment center where Scott was, and she was an oh God, she was a West Texas brassy woman who said exactly what was on her mind, and she scared the living daylights out of me. But I was so, I was mesmerized by her. She wore bracelets all the way up one arm, and, and her purse was bigger than she was, and she was always looking for her cigarettes and her lighter, and, and she was just outspoken. But she had a program of Alan, of AA that was beyond anything I have ever seen since. She was diligent in her recovery and willing to share the truth with other people and she was admired and respected and I loved that lady from the moment I laid my eyes on her and she uh, spoke at the um, oh the the woman's AA convention that's the national the national woman's AA convention and it was in Phoenix Arizona if I remember right sometime in the, the mid 80s and Jean was one of the speakers and uh, she talked about that uh, this journal thing and um, I started then, it, I was about a year in the program, I began to write in a journal as a result of that. And one day, even though I was intimidated by her and frightened by her, I called her and I said, could I bring my journal to you and let you take a look at what I've written and see if I'm on track here? And I took my journal over to her at the, her place of work and she um, fed me lunch and then we went into her private office and she read a few, I said to her, you can read anything that you want to in this book, you know, I'm, it's just between the girls. And she read about three or four words, and she burst into laughter, which just devastated me. And, and uh, she says, Beverly, there is not a feeling on the page. She says, this journal looks like it was written by a little kid in second grade. I went to the grocery store. I brushed my teeth. I saw Sally there. I went to a meeting. I came home. I went to bed. And that's how my journal looked that day. I, could, I promise you, I promise you, I have all my old journals. That's exactly the way it looked. Jean handed me a feeling wheel, much like these little faces that I put in this handout, and she said, I want you to be diligent about writing in this journal, but you must become honest with who you are. You have to write down a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly every single day, 
And she says, be honest, be truthful. This is going to do you absolutely no good if you're not truthful about who you are. And she said to me, you absolutely must write something good. We are people who tend to focus on the bad. We want to write down all the problems on the page. And she um, gave me a piece of paper where she wrote me a mock journal page, and I still have that in my journal today, where she wrote. And I have it on the page um, where I always put it in, I think it's May 22nd, um, I always put it in that page because she was so important in my life. I hope as you go along that you find people who are important in your life and you, oh, here's the purple paper. Um, I hope that as you go along, you find these people in your life that mean so much to you. Even if they, your paths never cross and they move to Arizona or they die, always keep them close to you in your heart because they were your messengers and you will continue to have messengers in your life. This is the little piece of paper that Jean wrote as her mock journal page for me that day. It was May 22, 1985, and her good thing that day was she says, I stopped for a hot fudge Sunday," And um, that was a big deal because she had to go south to go home and Brahms is on the north on the north uh, lane of the interstate, so she had to actually make an effort to stop and get herself a hot fudge sundae. And then she said that her low feeling for the day was that the guy that she was sitting, she says, he always makes fun of me and makes me feel less than. And then she wrote on here, Jean Coffin, and she gave me that, you know, and it's her little mock page. My pages have become a little more elaborate than that, but then again, she's an, she was an alcoholic woman, and I'm an Al-Anon, and I tend to overdo everything. <laughs> Um, I have a picture of the little baby with the purple paper, and if you look, she's got her little eye in a mirror. She's looking at her eye in the mirror, and I just love that little picture. And I keep the pictures of the babies in, in their birthdays and uh, so that I, not that I don't, I, I remember. And this is Sarah when she was three, and she's reading the Alateine book in, in a little chair, and she's nine now, and I've just dropped all my junk on the floor. Anyhow, um... I would like to also show you a picture of my son. Some of you in the back won't be able to see it. But, you know, somebody told me early on to find an image of God that I could believe in. And I have a lady that I met in Crested Butte, and her name, um, uh, my, she's my very best friend. <laughs> her name is Jane. <laughs> I really forgot. Um, unfortunately, we were put together in the year of 1993 because her son somehow or other, drove his car off of a, off of a um, mountainside in Aspen, Colorado. And, and, and that was in June, and I, our son left, uh, died in, in February, and somebody said Beverly just lost her child, too, and, Jean and I, or Jane and I came together. And Jane is a very spiritual woman. Um, she's a born-again Christian, and I just admire not only her Al-Anon program, but her, her manner of spirituality. And she said to me, she says, you must... You must develop an image of a God that you can believe in. And she says, I see my God as a carpenter and a fisherman. She said, so he would be suntanned. She says his hands would be rough and calloused. She said he probably would not wear shoes most of the time. Maybe if he did, they back then they would be a form of a sandal that would give him freedom. She says his clothing probably would be loose, maybe a muscle shirt if they had muscle shirts back then, and, you know, something that would give him access. He'd be suntanned. She says probably his hair would be long, and, and she says he's kind of, he's, he's just a good guy, you know, just a, a clean-cut, healthy-looking, suntanned guy. 
And one day I came across this picture, and my son was a carpenter and a fisherman, and I'm not trying to tell you in any way that I have put my son up on that kind of a pedestal in any way because you've, I've told you his story. But I looked at this, and I thought to myself, he would be my image of perhaps the God of my understanding, just an outdoor-looking guy, his hair long. He's looking at the motor of the car, his drunk truck. <laughs> this is a dilemma. <laughs> I remember the day well. We just didn't know what to do with that car anymore. I mean, it truly had drunk bumps. <laughs> this little thing is in my journal, and it's something that my mother-in-law crocheted, and I found it in one of her books after she died, and so that stays in there. And, you know, I just, some things I put in here, and when I retire my journal, I retire the thing with it, and there are things here that I keep in here from year to year. And every year the journal gets retired with the cover, and I make a new cover. I am very ritualistic. I mean, it, for me, it has to have great meaning for me to stay, for me to, you thought I went, you remember Kukul Fred and Ollie when he'd say, I'm going downstairs. <laughs> I just, I, I'm, I'm really telling you I'm gonna, how old I am. I, I'm an American bandstand kid, if that, if that helps you out any. Um, so anyhow, also on page 336, it says, the purpose of my inventory is to get a clearer picture of where I now stand, to recognize shortcomings that still need to be corrected and not use any self-deceiving means to justify them. On page 336, which is the last day of your ODAT book, it says, this is the day on which another year closes. Now they're asking you, first of all, for a month. Now they're saying another year closes. It says, is it, a good, it is a good time for a quiet, honest look at my, pro at my personal progress. Now, long before I wrote that down, I had started another ritual, which is January 1st of every year. I take my new crispy little journal out, which I, I, put it, I give it to myself for Christmas. I make it in September. I put it in a box. I wrap it with beautiful paper. I put a bow on it, and I said, to Beverly, love Beverly. And I give myself a journal. And so on Christmas Day, I open it up, and I'm so surprised. <laughs> And on New Year's Day, my husband and I have breakfast together, and I retire back to my room, and that is where I read my journal, and I go over it for the year. Not every word, but I, I go through the pages, and I look and I, at the events, and I go, I remember that day when I was there. I remember being at South Bay Roundup that day, and the people and the warmth that I felt there. I remember that day. I remember this birthday party. I remember that meeting. I remember this lunch at Luby's. I remember these things, you know, and I, and I bring back the feelings. I remember that fight. Oh, my God, what a day that was, you know, and I put those things. So I read these things. Now, here is another thing that I do. I have learned to dare to dream. And I said that in a workshop one time, and one girl just burst into tears. Daring to dream was beyond her wildest thoughts. She could not believe that we become well enough to begin to have the right to dream, to have a dream. What is your dream? Do you even know? Most of us don't. And if you, you start to write some of these things down on paper, believe it or not, they will come to pass. Because God reads the words in your heart. And if you wake up enough to dare to dream, God will help you make your dreams come true. He is on your side. And one year, 
I wrote some ludicrous dreams down on my dream page thinking they could not possibly ever come true. And one of the dreams that I wrote on my page on January 1st, two years ago or three years ago now, the very first thing on the top of my dream was that I thought I would like to go to Hawaii, and that thought really never occurred to me. <clears throat> I knew it was beyond my, my um, financial means. I knew that, you know, I thought, what in the world would a nice girl like me ever be doing in Hawaii? But I thought, you know what? I can dare to dream, and I wrote Hawaii down at the top of my page, and that was January 1st, and on May 15th of that year, I was invited to speak in Hawaii. And I called my daughter-in-law, and I said, you are not going to believe this. But I said, I have been asked to speak in Hawaii, and she joined me. She said, I don't care if Papa wants to go or not. She said, I'm going. <laughs> and, um, and so anyhow, she came with me, and we had a wonderful time together. It was a wonderful time together. Um, she's, my, she's my best friend. And, and, and through being able to find myself in the journal pages and you know, through all the other things, We've learned that we can express the good, the bad, and the ugly with each other, and nobody's going to run away. Nobody's going to disappear. Nobody's going to slam a door shut on the relationship forever. And I have not ever had that, and she has definitely not ever had that. And we have decided we're going to stay no matter what, but that's not to be abused. That's to be cherished. So any time that we have a feeling to express towards each other, it is in love that we start the expression. Um, so anyhow, I decide on the first day of January, I read over my journal, I dare to dream. I write down some of my spiritual goals. Um, you know, do I, do I, what do I like to achieve spiritually? Would you like to go to a retreat? Would you like to, you know, decide that you really do want to pray on your knees every day? Write that down. And in writing it, if you become willing. You open the door to willingness. That's all that you're doing, you know. I believe. I heard this and it was words. A lot of things we hear in their words and they're profound to us, but till they till we come to own them is a whole nother process. And um, I, that went right out of my head. I, I <laughs> it's been a long day. That was a real spiritual and profound thought I was about to share with you. <laughs> I know. Okay, what we are afraid of is realizing the dreams because we don't know whether or not we are worthy of them. And so it's easier to not write them down at all rather than to be disappointed because we may not be worthy of receiving them. And you know, that thing with Hawaii was just one of those more blatant, more profound things. But small things have come to pass for me by writing them down. And what's happened to me over the years is that I write down less and less of my wants. You know, there's less and less because I realize now that, you know, I've had, I've, I've had so many things come true. Somebody said to me early on in the program, they said if you were to write a list of everything you would want 15 years later, you would find out that none of those things were important, but you had gotten things you never even dreamed to put on the list. But what I'm encouraging you to do is to begin to dream, you know, to have a dream. Um, write down your resentments, your fears, you know, any sex problems that you have. Keep those things current. From time to time, I will write something in my journal that I feel needs to be discussed with my, with my sponsor. It will be the end of a problem or I can see the beginning of one or one I'm stuck in. And I'll call her and I'll say, do you have a minute and let me read my journal page to you and for today. And, and you know, I'll read it to her and, and it's like a little mini inventory. Um, 
So I share that with her, you know, angers, resentments, uh, this sibling rivalry, this sibling rivalry thing I told you I have problems with a lot. Um, my attitude, you know, how is my attitude about something? And, and I read once that my attitude towards a problem is a part of the problem, you know. Um, in The Courage to Change on page 329, it says, when I keep track of my inventory on a daily basis, I no longer have to fear that I will fall into that vague, hazy state in which denial so easily takes root. When I turn this inventory over to my higher power, I know that I am moving towards freedom. Um, the inventory, you know, these daily inventories, where did I hurt somebody? Do I need to make an amend to my husband? Do I need to uh, clean up something that I said? I don't know how you are, but I really believe in that little statement where it says the road gets narrower. You know, as we recover in this program, we can't cut ourselves as much slack as we used to be able to cut ourselves. It's a, it's a matter of knowing when we have done wrong. It's a matter of knowing when an amend needs to be made. It's that icky, wrenching feeling like you're going to throw up, you know, after you've done something that's just tacky. A lot of my stuff really isn't major stuff. It's tacky, little nickel and dime things, little penny ante compromises, little, you know, that compromise my values, that compromise my um, my dignity, that compromise um, my virtue. These little penny ante things, and I don't want that to happen to me anymore. And so I work as hard as I am aware of. And that doesn't mean that I'm Saint Beverly. I, you know, I, I, please. I, all I'm sharing with you is my experience, strength, and hope. And I want you to know that a lot of times I look like I'm gliding on the top, but my feet are paddling a million miles an hour underneath. I mean, it's the process of recovery for me is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. A lot of, uh, I, t I put a lot of time into it, and yet it's not self-centered. In starting your own diary or journal as you wish to call you first of all need to get in the mood you know you have to you have to um, you have to be somewhere where it's conducive to feeling comfortable now I'm a little kid at heart so my journal I don't it I don't know if you recognize that or not because I didn't show you the pages but they're written in all different colors <laughs> red and blue and green and purple and you know and uh, so I have I have and I love fountain pens and, and my husband gave me an absolutely exquisite fountain pen for my birthday a couple of years ago. And because I have these little rituals, I had to go get myself a leather case to put my fountain pen in. And then I have a briefcase to put the fountain pen case in. And the <laughs> journal is in, a, in, is in a wrapper. And all my books are covered. And I'm, I'm, I guess you would call me eccentric <laughs> or neurotic. I don't know which. Um, but that's who I am. Jean Coffin wrote on napkins. And, and in spiral binders. And if she went off to a hotel and she didn't bring her journal with her, she wrote on whatever was available. And she, can you imagine this? She stuffed it into that page. I can't even, I mean, I can't do that. But if that works. <laughs> I think we have a whole room full of perfectionists, don't we? 